Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's issue of Chess Life magazine. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include one move at a time on the second Tuesday of each month, in which I talk to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karianis, in which she examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org or subscribe via Google or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Jamal Abdul Aleem is our guest today. He is a longtime contributor to Chess Life Magazine and Chess Life Online. He has made it something of a specialty to write in our first moves department in Chess Life, and he's covered the World Open for seven of the last eight years for us. His articles have appeared in a variety of other chess publications, including WorldChess.com and Chess.com. He is the winner of several awards from the Chess Journalists of America, including the prestigious Chess Journalist of the Year in 2013. He began his career as a night shift crime reporter at the old Milwaukee Sentinel. He later covered children's court and then suburban education for the merged Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. In 2017, he became education editor at The Conversation, a web-based platform for university scholars to share their knowledge and expertise with a wide audience. In that capacity, Jamal has tapped into his connections in the chess community and commissioned articles by Alexi Root, a chess educator and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas, and Daim Shavaz, a Florida A&M business professor and founder of the Chess Drum. When the weather is nice, you can occasionally find him playing at the chess tables in DuPont Circle, the famed chess hub of Washington, D.C. He was also a guest on my sister podcast, One Move at a Time, in March of 2019, which you can find in our podcast archives at uschess.org. He joins us today on Cover Stories with Chess Life to discuss his cover story on women's grandmaster and current U.S. women's champion Jennifer Yu. Welcome to the show and Happy New Year, Jamal Abdul Aleem. Uh, Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. I've already done a lot of talking, but I'm going to do a little bit more talking because I want to I want to set the stage for what this topic is for people who aren't that familiar with Jennifer. Um, and I'm going to read a little bit from her bio that was presented at the St. Louis Chess Club's website during the for the 2019 U.S. Women's Championship. So here we go. And I promise, listeners, eventually I will let Jamal talk and answer some questions. Jennifer Yu was born in Ithaca, New York, and started playing chess in first grade, attending an after-school chess class. After the school finished its chess sessions, Yu wanted to continue in her interest and asked her parents to find a coach. This simple request launched Yu's chess career. They took her to group chess lessons and tournaments for kids, but didn't realize how talented she was until that coach informed them. Today, the 17-year-old lives in Ashburn, Virginia, and is a pretty typical high schooler, aside from her immense chess talent. Her well-rounded interests include playing the flute and piano, listening to music, drawing, and playing sports. She currently holds a FIDE rating of 2278 and has participated in three World Youth Chess Championships. In 2014, you took home a gold medal at the World Youth Championship in the girls' under-12 section. She was the first American to do so in 27 years. She also won the National Girls Tournament of Championship three times and uh, competed on U.S. Women's Olympiad team for the first time in 2018. Um, so, Jamal, 
you know, you, you've got a very uh, compelling story about Jennifer in this January edition. Just to, uh, give us your general impressions before we get into the details of uh, your general impressions of Jennifer as a person and as a chess player. Yeah, so as a chess player, I mean, she's uh, been in the uh, top 100 girls or top 100 women uh, for quite some time, I believe about four years. And uh, I believe she's actually playing at Above, if I'm not mistaken, if you check um, FIDE, maybe um, above 2,300 now, uh, if I'm not mistaken. so I'll interrupt you. I did check her rating uh, as we uh, are recording this, and it was showing as 2,278. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So just about, you know, um, uh, 2,300. So as, as a chess player, just to, you know, consistently be uh, at the top like that speaks to her uh, her dedication uh, and, and passion for the game. And of course, you know, she is the uh, current uh, U.S. Uh, women's champion. Um, but one thing I know, and this was something that was based on, you know, some uh, uh, correspondence that we had, you know, leading up to the interview, is that, you know, her chest titles, she doesn't really want to just be defined by uh, just her chest titles. You know, there's so much more to her than that and even as you know she spoke about her chess career um she was more interested in talking about like what she got out of chess and how uh you know the different ups and downs that you experience um you know especially as a high level player how that had uh shaped her as a person and just given her a lot of uh insight into you know uh life itself you know, how to handle pressure, how to handle setbacks, and how to stay focused on your goals, even when things aren't necessarily going the way you want them to. That seems to be a characteristic of many of the rising crop of top players, as opposed to previous generations of top players, in that they do seem to have more of a uh, outside of chess sense of the world about them. Yeah, yeah. And you also see that just, you know, reflected in, you know, we may get into this um, a little bit more uh, into the interview, but just a wide variety of other things that she's involved in uh, besides chess, uh, which is kind of just fascinating in and of itself because we know that chess uh, is a very demanding uh, endeavor uh, and chess can be very unforgiving if you don't dedicate yourself to it. uh, but she's been able to, you know, stay at the top as well as, you know, do some other things uh, uh, academically and um, uh, and as a volunteer as well. So let's get into that a little bit uh, more depth, especially given your education background. Uh, talk about her thoughtfulness as an aspiring college student and what you think other students can take away from that. Yeah, yeah. So she is, um, you know, focused on. Uh, eventually becoming uh, a medical doctor and, um, you know, is prepared to do what it will take to, uh, t- to get to that point. Uh, in terms of, like, college, you know, when we spoke, um, you know, again, she was just really clear about not wanting chest or chest titles to, uh, to define her. And she went into, you know, some of the other things that, that she was doing um, as a high school. You know, so, for instance, you know, involvement in, in uh, math societies, computer science societies, um, uh, even cross country as well. Uh, so just involved in just uh, a lot of different things uh, beyond chess, um, as well as you know some some volunteering uh, that I think is just you know serving her quite well. 
uh, as she prepares for this next uh, chapter in her life. You and I are both similarly rated chess players and on the class level, and you know she's playing at such a high level and taking these AP classes and volunteering. How do, how do you think one teenager just has the kind of bandwidth for this? It just seems exhausting to me. Yeah, it does. I mean, so she's, you know, um, as I say in the article, it's easier to count the number of classes that were not AP classes than it is to count the number of classes she, she took that, that, that were AP classes. It almost was like she was just in an AP curriculum. And, you know, I asked her about that. I'm like, well, how do you balance all these demanding uh, high-level classes and then, you know, to, and then to do well, so well in chess um, uh, as well? And honestly, like, the answer she gave is that she's not quite sure how she did it, you know. Um, you know, there were times when, you know, chess would have to take a, a bit of a backseat uh, so that she could tend to, uh, to, to her academics. And then there were times when, you know, she would miss, you know, weeks and weeks of school, uh, but then would be, you know, dedicated to, to make up whatever she had missed. Uh, but all in all, uh, you know, she managed to balance uh, both. So I think that's just a testament to her dedication, you know, not just to chess, but just to doing well uh, academically, you know, as she prepares for uh, the next chapter in her life, which, of course, is higher education and then beyond that, looking at a field in the career of, of medicine. And quite frankly, I mean, if you think about the type of doctor you want to be treated by, I think it's going to be someone that has that type of dedication, you know, to um, to perfecting their craft and doing the best that they can do. And you, you talk a bit about in the article about how being a chess player might inform her medical career. Can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, anytime I, I deal with the subject of chess, I always try to talk about its uh, applicability uh, to life or, or to specific careers. And so in, in the case of chess, I asked Jennifer, you know, about different parallels between, you know, what she might do as a surgeon, uh, um, you know, versus what she does as a chess player. And she spoke about the parallels in terms of like, you know, being under time pressure, um, you know, um, and just, you know, having to be precise in, in, in what you do. Uh, she felt like, you know, chess is um, uh, kind of a, um, a, a good preparation for that, that, that type of uh, career, you know, where it's just high stakes and, you know, um, you, you have to be precise in what you, in what you do. And, and dealing with the pressure associated with that. Did you get and discuss this at all? Is there any sense that at her high school, her being U.S. Women's Chess Champion is a big deal? Uh, actually, no. I didn't. I didn't um, really get into that, so I, I couldn't. I couldn't speak to you know how her um, fellow high schoolers see, see her in that regard. And do you know if she has uh, been accepted to and chosen a college yet? Yeah, so that's something that's like ongoing and, you know, understandably, um, you know, um, she was um, a, a little ambivalent about that, but that's, you know, perfectly understandable because, you know, it's like when you're trying to get into college, uh, there's certain things that you don't want to necessarily um, publish uh, until a decision has actually been made. Uh, but what I do know is that she's more concerned. So like some high level chess players might be focused on going to 
a school that has, you know, a strong chess team or, or chess program. Uh, but for her, it's more about, you know, what's going to happen uh, after college and will the college serve her well in terms of her career plans. And in the St. Louis bio I read, I mentioned already some of her uh, outside interests. Uh, do you get any particular sense from her with all these varied interests? Is, is, is there one particular thing outside of chess that's her favorite? Is, it, is there a musical instrument? Is it her cross country? Yeah, I don't know if there's anything that, that rivals chess. You know, one thing that she said, and this is clear, this is in the interview, um, when I interviewed her after uh, her uh, just uh, stellar uh, performance uh, at, at the Washington Congress, was that, you know, uh, and this is almost like a, almost a direct quote. She was like, I don't know what I would be doing without chess. Uh, so chess is like is like first and foremost among the, the many other things that that she does. And you mentioned that also that she is uh, is interested in pursuing and, and getting that IM title. It, it almost sounds though that she's more interested in having DR in front of her name than IM. Is do you think that's a fair statement? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like I think if she can swing both, she will. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where it's, it's just kind of unfolding. And I think uh, we'll have to see, uh, and as, as she will as well. But, you know, I think if she could if she could do both, you know, she could become an IM and then also, you know, become uh, a medical doctor as well, that, that she will. But I think ultimately she's going to devote her time and energy to um, whatever it takes uh, to, to get to the next level uh, in the career that, that, that she's pursuing. Um, and which, you know, is, Hey, if she were to leave chess, uh, today, you know, she's made her mark and, uh, chess has served her well. She's served the chess community well. And if that is what it took to launch her into the next phase in her career, you know, who could argue with that? Uh, because sometimes, you know, and this is common, um, uh, uh, some of the top players, when they, when it gets to college, they see that, look, well, a lot of these this chess is quite demanding, and you have to make some some tough decisions about um, how 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 dedicated you're going to stay to chess versus uh, uh, your studies. And you know, some 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 can do both and do it uh, do it quite well. But you know, who who could argue if if your objective is to become a surgeon? You know, who could argue against saying, "Well, I'm just going to devote my." <laughs> full attention to become the best surgeon that I can be. Yeah, again, it, it all sounds exhausting to me, so more power to her. <laughs> One thing that I, I, I found notable was that she didn't want to indicate who her coach was or is in, in when you were interviewing her. Uh, you, you've been around the, the, the chess scene and a lot of top players. Do you, do you have any guesses as to who it might be? I wish I did. Um, and... Um, but I, I, I just don't. Uh, I, I will say whoever it is is earning their money because, you know, <laughs> behind behind every, you know, I, I say this all the time, you know, behind every great player, there's usually a great coach. I don't think I've ever interviewed any young player who's done well um, who who didn't have uh, a good coach uh, some, somewhere in the background. So, you know, maybe I think the only way you could probably find that out is if maybe you were like a serious student and you were to say, hey, you know, I'm looking for a good coach. Can you tell me who your coach is? Because I want to hire that person. But sometimes, you know, players, they don't want to reveal who their coach is because then their opponents will look up their coach's games and try to get a sense as to how 
um, that that person might be playing based on how their coach plays. So uh, chess players have you know good reason sometimes to keep uh, the identity of their coaches uh, secret. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anybody who's met Jennifer or seen her on various chess streaming sites like during the Women's Championship, and she recently made an appearance at our K-12 Championship in Orlando, it comes across what a just a real composed young lady she is for a high school student. And that, that makes me wonder, what was the most difficult question you asked her, and, and how did she handle it and respond? Yeah, so, you know, I read in Gary... Kasparov's book, um, Deep Thinking, um, where he talks about the role of artificial intelligence, you know, in so many different aspects of our lives. And uh, Gary is interested in, um, you know, we, we have these matches between the best computers in the world. We have these matches between the best players in the world. Uh, but, but Gary Kasparov wants to see it's like, matches between computer, computers and humans against computers and humans, in other words, working as, as a team. And so, you know, in the field of medicine, right, you have kind of the same thing where it's not just doctors and it's not just computers, but it's doctors using computers, you know, as they perform surgery and whatnot. And so I mentioned that it's kind of like a lead up to uh, a question I asked Jennifer. Well, one of the things I said was it'd be interesting, like, if, if surgeons had the equivalent of chess ratings, um, you know, just to, 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 to deal with, you know, how, how good of a surgeon they are. Um, and, you know, she agreed that would be kind of an interesting thing. And then I said, well, that's kind of a lead up to what I really want to ask you, which is that, look, I know, and you know, as a chess player, no matter how good you are, occasionally you may make a mistake, you may blunder. And in the game of chess, that's one thing, but... Uh, when you're in the operating room and you make a blunder, like that's a person's life. And I asked her, are you prepared for the reality of that? You know, this, this whole, you know, this, uh, potential for like you're doing what you're doing as a surgeon and you make, make an error. Um, and then, you know, a person loses their life as a result of that. Are you, are you prepared for that? And her answer, I thought, I thought was fair. She said that that is more of a question for her once, you know, once she gets past medical school into the residency and closer to the the uh, the career. But I do know that just um, having asked the question, I know that it's something that you know uh, I think I think made an impact, uh, and that and that should be you know uh, uh, taken quite quite seriously throughout. Uh, her studies. And that answer shows a certain maturity because when I was her age, if I was asked a question, even if I didn't know the answer, I would try to come up with an answer on the spot. I wouldn't deflect it for a decade away. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, that's the concept in chess too, right? You know, declined. <laughs> so, right. Um, you know, and, um, you know, you, in, in a chess game, you don't have to respond to every single thing that happens on the chessboard sometimes, especially if the just to carry on uh, with your plan and to deal with the threats, you know, um, uh, when, when they become more serious. Every threat is not necessarily a threat. And, um, you know, maybe that gives some insight into, into, into how she plays. Let's 
make it a more general question now and not specifically about Jennifer Yu, because you you do attend many of the top events. I, I mentioned the world, you're a frequent attendee at the World Open. The fact that we have so many young players having such success at such young ages is one of the more notable aspects of our U.S. Chess Federation in these last few years. Do you hear much chatter about this when you're out there, or do people just accept it as the way things are now? Yeah, I, I think it's you know probably you know a testament to um, uh, you know the good good cultures and good programs that are being made um, uh, available, um, and then also you know I guess maybe just coming up in the uh, in the computer age that enables a lot of things to take place that might not have uh, previously. So, for instance, you can get coaching. Um, you know, from, from GMs around the world, you don't have to necessarily live in the same vicinity. And I've interviewed, you know, young players who, uh, have had coaches, you know, in, in, in other parts of the world. So when you couple, you know, just the, 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 uh, the different capabilities, you know, in terms of technology to be able to, to access good coaching in different places. And when you consider, you know, the, uh, uh, the chess engines, you know, I, I think, uh, the young players today are, are probably more, you know, reliant upon, you know, chess and not chess, you know, computer analysis of, of, of the games and taking advantage of that. And uh, I think that's just, that's probably playing a big role um, in, you know, seeing young talent, you know, just develop and flourish um, at, the, at the rate that it is now. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think you're spot on with that analysis. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's time for our monthly Best Question Contest, which is sponsored by U.S. Chess Federation Sales, the largest chess retailer in the United States. From chess books, software to DVDs, from chess pieces to clocks to computers, U.S. Chess Sales is your complete one-stop chess shop. With over 5,000 items in stock, it offers same-day shipping and a low-price guarantee. Find it cheaper at any specialty chess retailer and will gladly match them. Shop today at www.uscfsales.com. So, Jamal, the question I, I picked as our best question comes from our real friend of the podcast, uh, Women's International Master and uh, Dr. Alexi Root, who uh, teaches at the University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, and she um, is a former women's champion in her own right. I believe it was 1989. Uh, and her question is based on a editorial that Judith Polgar wrote. And, and the quote she gives is, Judith Polgar wrote on November 30th, I make a point of never separating girls and boys, nor awarding special prizes for girls. Meanwhile, national federations use their resources and public subsidies are creating more female-only competitions. It is high time to consider the consequences of this segregation, because in the end, our goal must be that women and men compete with one another on an equal footing. Now, before I ask you her question, and uh, or Alexi's specific question, um, I, I should note, you know, we, I'm, I'm fully cognizant of the fact that we're a couple of guys here about to talk about women's only events. Uh, so I'd like to refer people also to our sister podcast, Ladies Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month and is hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi. She often discusses this type of issue and she does so in a more nuanced way than, than we might be able to do here. So back to you, Jamal. Alexi says, um, 
She wants to know, are segregated tournaments a good use of resources in light of Polgar's editorial in favor of integrated rather than segregated tournaments? Or to put it another way, would public donations and federation funds be better spent on integrated or open tournaments and efforts? And perhaps, given that you are an expert in education, can you make an analogy to historically black colleges and universities or to single-sex schools? Mm-hmm. I turn it over to you, Jamal. Yeah, so I guess, you know, yeah, I'm, I might be a guy, but I'm also a father, and I have a daughter um, who has played in the uh, the all-girls national on at least one occasion, maybe two. And um, so I say that to say this, is that I don't think in terms of, um, you know, like tournaments just for, for, for girls, um, versus, you know, having girls and women compete with guys. I don't think that necessarily has to be an either-or proposition. I think it can be both and. In other words, we can have both, and I think we should have both. And one of the reasons I say that is because, um, look, when you, when you have young girls at the chessboard, right, and, and then it's an event that's just dominated by men, sometimes it just creates kind of a dynamic that can be uh, quite, uh, intimidating and sometimes you know uh, we as men I'm just speaking in general uh, we may say or do things that just are not the most appropriate things uh, um, to, to do in the presence of, of especially young girls and uh, I, I don't know I'm not going to sugarcoat that and I say that to say that the all girls national uh, that is held every year in Chicago is just a wonderful event and I think it's a great thing for, for, for young female uh, players to be able to experience an environment where they are uh, not just the majority, but that, that's the entire population. And it just, it has a different feel. And anyone, I think, who um, is a father or mother and who has a young, a young girl knows that if they've been to that event, that there's just something, you know, um, just, just great about having that type of an environment, you know, versus one that is uh, dominated by men or, or older men. It just creates a different feel. And I believe um, girls should have that opportunity to, to, to play among themselves. Now, having said that, um, yeah, I mean, there's open tournaments. And, of course, you know, we want everyone to, the reason they're open, we want everyone to have access uh, to them so that when they compete, they know that they're competing against um, uh, the top talent, irrespective of, uh, of gender uh, age and, 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 and other things. So I guess the bottom line for me is that I just don't see that as an either or proposition. I think we should have um, both things available so that uh, players can develop and, and, and have the type of di- uh, diverse type of experiences that they need uh, to become the best players that they can be. And I'll add to that, that our, as an organization, we hear from these girls all the time that they want these segregated events that they feel more comfortable and, and welcomed at them yeah. and and then the other thing is you know segregation often raises a you know the ugly specter of you're not allowed to do something else but you know in this case they have the best of both worlds they have these special events that make them feel welcome and if if, uh, if they want to participate in open events they have that opportunity as well right right yeah. uh, so uh, Lexi, thank you for the the question. Your $50 gift certificate is waiting for you in your email's inbox. So there was a second part to the question, right, with respect to HBCUs, um, historically Uh, black colleges. Yeah. So um, I happen to know, so I live near Howard University, 
uh, and this might be some news, um, but uh, the chess team at Howard University uh, is quite active. And um, if you look on their Instagram account, they're actually trying to organize uh, an HBCU, uh, that is Historically Black College and University Tournament, uh, I believe this spring. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing uh, to do uh, because, you know, hopefully it will draw uh, talented players from historically black colleges uh, to, 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 to compete. And again, that's another thing where, so if you were to ask me, you know, should there be separate events for historically black colleges or should historically black college teams um, compete in events like the Pan Am? Um, again, I would, I would say the same thing. I don't think it's an either or proposition. I think you should have both because the dynamics of, of both, um, you know, I think there's benefits uh, in, in having both. And I, I wouldn't really use the word, you know, segregated uh, as much as, you know, I would just say if, if there's an HBCU tournament, then that's what it is. It's an HBCU tournament. Uh, and if there's an open tournament, then, then then that's what it is. But I think players should have the opportunity to do both. Do you know if Howard has comp- competed in the Pan Ams in the past and if they're competing in the uh, Pan Ams that are up? What will have been uh, already taking place when we this podcast drops? Yeah, that's a good question. I would just say um, probably the best thing to do would be to check their Instagram feed because it's quite active. Uh, I don't think a day goes by that they don't post something on Instagram. And uh, trust me, if they were going to compete in the Pan Am, it's going to be announced there. And I assume we can find them on there just by searching Howard University chess team? Um. Uh, I believe so. Um, uh, if not, I, I can I can look that up and, and get you the uh, the actual name. Okay, so we uh, we're, we're coming to the end here, Jamal. And you know, since this is the first podcast of 2020, um, and you're a very active player and and attend many of our high level Swiss events throughout in, in on the East Coast of the U.S. What what are you looking forward to in the 2020 chess year? Yeah. So interestingly, you know, I bought a mega glow-in-the-dark chess set. So the king is like about 25 inches tall. And um, I'm hoping to to break that thing out um, and, and put it into, you know, public spaces. Uh, I did it once at uh, here in Washington, D.C., where I live, uh, at a place called, uh, some people call it Malcolm X Park, some people call it Meridian Hill Park. So whichever one you know it by, that's where I was at. And it was interesting what took place. You know, when I put the glow-in-the-dark pieces out, they had this huge chessboard that's built into the ground um, near uh, the reflection pool in the park. And when I put the chess pieces out, you know, it just kind of uh, attracted a, a, a small crowd. And this was in late fall. So I imagine when I do this, uh, I plan to do it, hope to do it in the, in the spring and in, in the summer. You know, around you know after dark, uh, just to kind of see what kind of um, things might come out of that when you put these giant glow in the dark pieces in public spaces. I also have a nine by nine chessboard, so Malcolm X Park won't be the only place that you might see me doing something like that. I will say, you know, I've tried to do this at some some tournaments. I wish I could tell you the tournament organizers were welcoming me. They're they're not. I've, I've been stonewalled. I don't know why, you know, and uh, I use the word Stonewall purposefully. Um, if you want to look up who Stonewall is, please do. Um, but, you know, I think that it's we, we have to do some different things at, at chess tournaments and we have to involve different people. Um, 
So, you know, hopefully at some point I'll be able to bring the giant glow-in-the-dark pieces to a tournament uh, at, at some point. Um, there's another project I'm working on. I want to I want to create the biggest digital chess clock in the world. And so I'm working with a company um, to come up with some specifications for that because if you have a giant chess set like I have, um, you know, you want to have a giant chess clock as well. And I think that would create quite a spectacle. You know, think about that. A giant glow-in-the-dark chess set with a, um, uh, a, a giant chess clock uh, as well. Uh, hopefully they'll have remote control so that the players don't have to go from this big chess board to actually hit the clock physically. They can do it with the remote control. And um, so you might wonder, well, why, why would you share an idea like that? Like maybe it could be a patent. Yeah, I might get a patent for it at some point, but I don't care. You know, if a person wants to rip off my idea, fine. If they got the resources to do it and the interest in doing it, uh, be my guest. But I think actually, you know, I don't think anyone is going to do that. I think we're going to be the first uh, to do it, and that soon you will have the biggest digital chess clock in the world here in the nation's capital in time for, uh, I believe, what is it, 2022, when the K-12 Nationals are coming uh, to National Harbor, uh, which is near D.C. Uh, I know there's some big K-12 tournaments coming to, to the D.C. area, uh, I think, in 2022 and 2023. And um, certainly, well, I, I hope by then that we'll have uh, the world's biggest digital chess clock and hopefully make it available at those tournaments so that our kids can experience chess on a whole different level. Well, that all sounds really cool. And and, and I'm trying to think of a solution to your uh, stonewall, stonewall problem. Maybe if you set up a stonewall attack on the chessboard, yeah. <laughs> maybe that'll yeah. come with some... <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is sending a message, you know, so yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Um, so Jamal, that this has been wonderful and listeners, uh, we also announced in this January issue that our full digital archive of Chess Life and Chess Review magazines going back to 1933 is now available on our uschess.org website. I encourage you to download those and do a search for Jamal Abdul Aleem and read all of his articles that go back about, I think it's about 10 years now, uh, right, right, Jamal? Yep, 10 years. Yeah, so um, just have a little bit of a dip down chess history memory lane with with one of our premier writers and a former chess journalist of the year jamal thank you for appearing on cover stories with chess life wow thanks for having me hey bye-bye thank you for listening to cover stories with chess life our podcast will return on the first tuesday of next month when we will again be making a deeper dive into the pages of chess life u.s chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people enrich lives and enhance communities through chess to become a member go to uschess.org and click on the join button where you can find a membership option that is right for you as a member you enjoy rated play print and digital copies of chess life for chess life kids and you help u.s chess grow the game If you are already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Thank you and good chess.